Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined with Dr. Kenneth Howell as we join you each week from the off studios of the Coming Home Network International. And uh, we're, Ken and I are right now uh, into a study of Romans. And uh, we just began, and uh, Ken, I think we jokingly think we'll probably be here for the, until the next millennium because we want to take our time <laughs> through this wonderful book. And, uh, and I thank you all for joining us. Again, if I can begin just by reminding you that uh, you can be a part of this program if you join us at uh, deepinscripture.com. Uh, you can send us emails at dis at chnetwork.org. And you can subscribe to the Coming Home Network, CH Network Facebook page, or you can join us on Twitter. Ken, I don't even use Twitter, so I, but somebody here at the office does. I don't even know how to do the Twitter thing. But uh, please join us on that. We, we'd love to have your thoughts about whether this program is an encouragement to you. you know, our, our goal in this program is, to, uh, is based on assumption that by uh, under grace, uh, being deep in Scripture, and deep in history draws us to be deeper in Christ, and that's our, our goal for this program. We're looking at today at Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, and uh, we're going to get to that in a moment, and I just want to say that this passage at first glance uh, can come across as insignificant as if we're just merely jumping before Paul gets into the deep theology. He's... he's uh, uh, you know, saying some niceties to to win himself a hearing with these people. But I really do believe, and Ken and I have talked about this, that behind this passage is an important assumption that without this assumption, uh, it's possible to miss some of the real gems of theology and significance of authority that are in this passage. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, and, well, the, the assumption behind this passage is something that we miss today, especially here in America, and that is the authority of the apostolic bishop. And we see this practiced out and expressed in this passage. But in this passage, there are some hidden pearls of theology we'll get to in a moment. But we like to get emails in for to open our discussion, and Ken, uh, I, we received this email this morning. And this actually was in uh, response to this last Monday night's Journey Home program, in which I had a, as a guest a former Southern Baptist minister, and I, I can't right now remember his name, who was my guest on that program. Ken, I guess that's what happens when you, you get over 20, right? Are you over 20? Exactly. Yeah, yeah well, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the email goes, Marcus, tonight your guest shared the unfortunate way in which a Southern Baptist minister told your guest that the guest's brother was going to hell because your guest did not know if his brother was saved. You responded by saying something like, a guy feels he is called to preach and does not have to answer to a bishop. My question is, do you think Baptist ministers are not legitimate clergy because Baptists do not have bishops? In Christ, Reverend Rob. So the, 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 the key question is, in other words, do Baptists or non-Catholic ministers, are they legitimate clergy because there was no bishop involved in their ordination, in their call, or in the, the continued practice of ministry? Um, 
Well, let me say right off the bat that this question deserves a much longer discussion, right, Ken, than we can give it on this program. Indeed, But what I'd like to do is to to divide this question up into two things. One is the affirmation of Reverend Rob's ministry. I'm assuming the emailer is a Baptist minister, uh, and his question was, do I think that his calling to ministry is not legitimate? And then the other issue is the issue of ordination, and this concept of ordination, which in fact differs from one Christian group to the next. I was originally ordained a congregational minister, and then after a year of my, my own ordination as a congregational minister was transferred to the Presbyterian Church. And the requirements of ordination and the Congregationalist were quite a bit different than the requirements of ordination as a Presbyterian. When I was ordained as a Congregationalist, uh, I had received my Master's Divinity degree, which therefore qualified me to be a minister. I believed I had a call to the ministry, which I had tested in many different ways. That's why I went to seminary. So there's the call. But the ordination came when, as a result uh, of the church calling me to be their minister, then about a dozen local ministers and elders and deacons gathered around me laid their sweaty hands on my shoulders and head, prayed for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and as a result of their prayers, we believed I was ordained to the ministry. That's the way it was done. The Congregational Church, the Presbyterian Church is a little different. Baptist churches are a little different because there's stages, Methodist Church, Episcopal, Presbyterian. So ordination is one thing. Call to ministry is another. And I would say on the first case, the Ken, I would say that we, as Catholics, recognize and affirm and celebrate the men and and women around the world who are dedicating their lives in service to Jesus Christ because they sensed a call of God to give their life and gifts for the service of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And we affirm that. And the church, in her ecumenical dialogues, recognizes uh, this call to ministry. The issue of ordination is a bit different because the history of ordination, and Ken, maybe I'll turn this back to you, really goes back 2,000 years, goes back before that, goes back before Christ. Uh, We see Samuel ordaining, in essence, David to be king of Israel. Uh, we see this, the laying out of hands that Paul talks about with Timothy in, in Paul's letters to Timothy, reminding Timothy of the gifts he had received when, on the laying out of hands. But behind those laying out of hands is this assumption of ordination. And behind that assumption of ordination is the key word, sent. Ken, I'll pass it on to you. Yeah. I'll pass the difficult yeah, stuff I, on I to you. Yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think the way you've explained it is, is so important because um, this idea of being sent is means it means two things. One is that we're all sent by God to, by virtue of our being baptized Christians, to be heralds or to be those who announce the gospel to others. 
So we are. We're, we're all called to be missionaries. Um, and we're reminded of that quite often in the Catholic Church, at least I think by the, the liturgy we are, where it says go and proclaim the gospel. Um, but that's a, um, that's a dist- that, that, so we're sent in that way. But in what other way are people sent? And that is the ordination from that comes back from the apostles through the bishops and the priests and the of the ancient church leading right up into today. I'm glad you stressed this importance of being sent because in John chapter 7, Jesus reminds us, he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man's will is to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching that I have is from God, whether that I'm speaking on my own authority. So even as a man, our Lord Jesus Christ did not claim his own uh, self-authority. He claimed that his authority was from the Father. And so um, in in one very important way, no one has the authority to proclaim the gospel except those who are sent. Now, we're all sent by virtue of our baptism as as baptized Christians, but there's another sense, a deeper and maybe more technical sense, in which only those that are called by God and properly ordained. This is what Paul seems to be speaking about when he says in Romans chapter 10, well, how can, how can men call upon whom and whom they've not believed and how they can believe in whom they've never heard and how can they hear without a preacher and how can they preach unless they are sent? So to be a preacher in that specific sense of ordination, one must be sent. Um, so to answer this brother's question, it's a very good question, the answer is sort of yes and no. Yes, we're all sent. We're all chosen by God to be sent. But there's only some that are called to be priestly sent, sent to be priests. And in that sense, no Protestant minister is um, is is called to be a priest, not only by virtue of what the Catholic Church believes, but even by virtue of what that church teaches. My Presbyterian ordination back in 1978 was not a priestly ordination. It was not a sacerdotal ordination. And that was by the way the Presbyterians saw it as well. But nevertheless, I was being sent in some sense to preach the gospel. Right. And Ken, another thing, and again, this will, to me, this gets behind today's passage because so many of us look at Scripture through modern lenses and post-Reformation lenses, and which as a result of Martin Luther and then John Calvin and then the other reformers and then their disciples and then how those theologies changed over the years, is that the authority and the reality of the necessity of a bishop slowly was weaned out of Christianity for a, a great percentage of Christians in this world. Um, the authority of the church. And so leaning towards individual interpretation, individual calling, uh, so that in modern Protestantism, a young man, you know, believes God's calling him into the ministry. And to a certain extent, a young man who believes he's called to be a minister doesn't need anyone else's affirmation because that young man can apply to a seminary and gets accepted at a seminary 
gets trained uh, at the seminary, earns his master's divinity degree, can graduate from a seminary, well, anybody really confirming whether he has a call from God. And if that young man sends his dossier out to a church that's looking for a pastor and he gets hired by that church, then that little local church, a gathering of folk, lays their hands on him. Hmm. And so there's this individualism. But the truth is, Ken, that when we look at the, the culture of the Bible, all the way from the beginning, anyone in the position of authority always had to be sent by a recognized authority. Saul, you see that? Yeah. I was going to say Saul didn't become king just because he wanted to become king or David right. and all the way through the exactly. high priest. And nowhere yeah. does Jesus ever change any of that in his Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, I'm not changing any of this stuff. Uh, yeah, not a yeah. dot or a tittle. And we see in the early church immediately, even when a few people came to Jesus and said, hey, I want to be your disciple. Not necessarily. Remember, Jesus said, can you live the way I live? Can you go where I go? He hand chose and sent his guys out. And then they Mm -hmm. sent them out. And that's the way it was. Ken, you're an early church father um, authority in your studies. I mean, that was the assumption of this continuity all the way through. And it isn't until the modern last 500 years that this has been changed. Yeah, I think you see that reflected in a text like Second uh, Timothy two uh, two, where uh, you know that's where Paul speaks of um, passing on the faith, and he says that we should. Uh, he says that uh, commit these things to faithful men. The things that I, the things that you have received from me, Timothy, commit to faithful men who, in turn, will be able to. Uh, teach others also. Now think about that, and there's four generations spoken there. The things that you've received from me, Timothy, you're the second generation, now commit those to faithful men, and then they will be able to teach others also. So there's four generations there. But notice, notice the pattern. It's from Paul to Timothy to those that are chosen by Timothy as faithful men, and they in turn will do it. So there's apostolic succession. There's succession going right back to the apostles. Whenever we look in the early church, we find the same truth being expressed in many ways. I was just going to add to that, that, that you, Ken and I both know in our lifetime that there have been some notorious um, ministers that have done some pretty nasty things. We, we know there's been a priestly scandal, but we know there's been a few Protestant minister scandals. Yeah. You know, there's the old Jim Jones Kool-Aid trick down in uh, South America. He was an ordained, mm-hmm. I think, Methodist minister. But, but the issue is that many of them look to Paul getting knocked off his horse as a direct revelation and call from God. And so young people think, well, hey, I have that call from God just like Paul did. But they forget that mm-hmm. Paul, as you just quoted 2 Timothy 2, 2, where Paul to Timothy to others and others, that before that, It wasn't merely the direct revelation of Jesus to Paul, but that Paul went to the apostles who had been sent by Jesus to get affirmed. So essentially, Paul was ordained by Cephas through the laying out of hands, uh, confirming the call that Paul had. So even Paul himself, it was not an individualistic call. That call had to be affirmed by the authorities of the church. Yeah, and Paul seemed to recognize that. That's one of the reasons he went up to Jerusalem. But um, 
what was unusual about Paul is the way in which it began, but not the way in which it ended. And this is really important. Yes, God may put it upon the heart of an individual to do a certain task, to have a certain mission. In fact, I mean, the Catholic Church, through her great saints, affirms that God gives everyone a mission to um, <clears throat> to fulfill. But that has to be uh, affirmed and confirmed by the proper authorities within the church. And that's that's where, and fortunately, sometimes American evangelicalism has gone off on its own without having that kind of affirmation. Now, it's retained to some degree in certain traditions like the Presbyterian, which we 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 served in because, you know, they do have a legitimate idea that you have to be properly sent. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me that... Um, well, even the Lutherans can. Originally, you know, Luther was getting rid of bishops and all that, but in time, they have bishops now. Yeah, you know, yeah. They yeah, recognize yeah. That, that there's a need yeah. for this authority because local, uh, you know, the local autonomy leads to a mess. And, you know, yeah. this brings us into the today's passage. Uh, and, Ken, you know, this passage, let me read this passage for everyone. Um, and we're going to look at Romans 1 8 through. 17. And uh, Ken, let me read that. And then if you would, when I get done, Ken, I want you to talk about from Scripture and the early church fathers that show that behind this passage indeed is the assumption of Paul's authority as an archbishop, if you will. That, that really is the point of this paragraph. Uh, that what he is saying in this paragraph, which he's expressing almost matter-of-factly, just like a bishop today might write to a church that he'd like to get to but hasn't been able to so that he can fulfill his responsibilities as their overseer, that this is behind what's in this paragraph. So let me read this, and then Ken, uh, go ahead and talk about that. Uh, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Hmm. Well, you know, when you mentioned earlier that uh, we might easily read over this as an insignificant sort of lead into the the substance of the book, um, 
your implication, I think, was exactly right, that we shouldn't read over this too quickly because what Paul is saying here, and remember that he's writing probably from Corinth, possibly even from Jerusalem, to the church in Rome where he's never been. And he is his joy in verse 8 is that the gospel, the faith, he says your faith is being proclaimed in the whole world. Now, he could mean two things when he says your faith. He could mean your your faith that you have in Jesus Christ. In other words, they're saying, boy, look at those Christians in Rome. They are really they really have a strong faith, and it's proclaimed all over the world. And if we take it in that way, we might ask the question, well, why would they proclaim the faith of the the Romans? Well, the answer is because the Roman it's the Rome was the was the center of the empire, and so if the gospel had been planted and grown and and taken fruit or had fruit in Rome, well, then it would have been proclaimed throughout the world. It might also be the faith that they've bought into, that is, the content of the faith is proclaimed in all the world. And notice this when he says in all the world, he's talking about this universal or Catholic nature of the gospel. The gospel is meant for everyone. So when he writes this now, he's writing as says in verse 1, a called apostle. He's been called. He's been set apart. He is an official delegate, an official representative of Jesus Christ. And he's going to go to Rome as that official apostle, as that official uh, um, delegate uh, from Christ. And he, what he's reminding them of is what binds us together in the church. And you think about that even today. What binds Pope Francis to the most uh, common everyday believer uh, on on the planet? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the content of that gospel, which he repeats in verse 9 when he says that God is my witness whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, in the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what is giving him the, the strength and the encouragement and to know that he officially represents Jesus Christ as a apostle, which were the early archbishops um, of, of the church. In that Galatians passage where Paul relates that after a time, after his conversion, and, and uh, he spent a number of years in Tarsus, maybe as long as 14, honing his understanding of the gospel, he then goes and receives the affirmation of the apostolic authority, Peter. Um, at that time, Paul recognizes that he and Peter have a shared authority for the church, that Peter will be the apostle to the Jews and Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. And if you will, what that essentially does is set them both apart as l what later in the church would be called metropolitans, if you will. Uh, yeah. That there were bishops in all these local areas, and historically in the early writings of the church fathers, you can see that there are men that are appointed as the local bishops all over the kingdom. Uh, and Ken, you've done some translations in one one that 
later we we see in uh, um, in Irenaeus where in from Leon's Irenaeus talks about the bishop of Rome and the bishops of different places and the long list of of the of the bishops who followed bishops and followed bishops but if you will these developed into archbishops that are in charge of other bishops and then metropolitans because mm-hmm. there was a metropolitan of Rome and of Antioch and Jerusalem and Constantinople over time and right. Uh, I recommended a number of weeks ago that this beautiful movie about Peter and Paul, mm-hmm. and in that it kind of expresses the idea that the idea of Peter, as opposed to being located at a local church, that he had kind of the floating authority, uh, traveling around, affirming men and appointing men in their positions, and we see Paul doing that as you read the. Second Timothy passage. He's appointing Timothy, and then he points Titus, and he points others. And so Paul has kind of a floating authority going around preaching, planting. And for him, he really saw this idea that uh, he wasn't going to build on a place where somebody else built, that his really calling was planting new churches and then appointing bishops. But he always felt this responsibility that because of the Gentiles in Rome, that falls under his appointed responsibility that he had received through Peter. And in the Acts chapter 6 passage, which is, I think, a key passage where the, the, already the responsibilities for the care of Christians was increasing so much that the apostolic leaders were saying, hey, we need help. Just like way in the Old Testament when Moses was getting overrun and his father-in-law says, hey, you need some helpers. So they appointed the 70 to take responsibility under Moses. We see the apostles appointing deacons and priests later. We see the, the rise of the priesthood under the bishops and the shared responsibility so that, as it says in Acts chapter 6, so that the, the bishops, the apostolic leaders, can devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the reason I mention that is that's what we see in this passage we're looking at, is Paul's expression of his call to prayer and the ministry of the word. And, oh, we're going to take a break here. I've been gabbing a bit. So let's, let's come back to that, Ken. What I'd like us to do is, first of all, kind of as an overlay, see how Paul's practice as a bishop is expressed in this, and then let's dig into some of the the pearls of theology that we find in this passage. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell, and you're hearing us on the uh, Coming Home Network presentation. See you Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings hearken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. 
If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus as he welcomes former Lutheran Deacon David Miller to the show. See how his studies led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And we're looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. And, and of course, the, the ending of that, verse 17, is that famous passage that Luther used to, uh, uh, as, the, uh, as the flag for his uh, charge he who through faith is righteous shall live, and his interpretation of that pretty much changed everything. But we're going to look at that in a moment. What I'd like to approach this passage, Ken, is in this, as we mentioned, this passage, which looks like you can just kind of read through it and jump on to, just jump to verse 17 as if that's the only important thing in here, that really there are five things expressed in this passage that are expressions of the apostolic responsibilities of Paul as a bishop over these people, even though he's never met them. And that's not uncommon. I remember in the history of America when John Carroll was appointed the first bishop of America back in 1790. Um, there were 30,000 Catholics distributed around the colonies of the three million Americans after the American Revolution. And those Catholics were distributed in, in little gatherings in Kentucky and a few in Pennsylvania and a, and a bunch of in Maryland. And then there was a new church started in New York and a new church. But Bishop Carroll hadn't met any of those folk. And so he would write them letters. He would write to priests he had never even met because these priests had come from escaping the, the French Revolution. And so they landed on the shores, and, Paul, and our bishop, first bishop, would write them letters saying almost the exact same things Paul's saying in these letters. You know, he'd love to come up and visit the Catholics in Boston, but he couldn't get there, and so he'd heard about how well they were doing. He hopes to come up and encouragement, encourage them and, and proclaim. I mean, that's exactly what Bishop Carroll would have said. Uh, all around the world, bishops have said and wanted to do, and here we see it in Paul. And so, Ken, the first thing, the first thing we see in this, verse 8 and 9, and what we see in this is that Paul um, admits and confirms these Christians that as, 
as an apostle, he's praying for them. And that not that one of the primary responsibilities of a spiritual leader for the people to whom Christ has given him to serve? Well, it's, it's interesting. He says in the very beginning of verse 8 how he thanks God for their faith. And that's the very foundation of all prayer. The great spiritual guides and leaders of the church will tell you that <clears throat> without a sense of gratitude expressed to God for others, um, there really is no foundation for prayer. Now, we also, I think, know from experience that you can only have true charity or true love when you have a spirit of gratitude, especially about the people. So when we find it difficult, for example, to pray for others, um, or we praying for people we don't know, as Paul is doing here, it always begins with the foundation of prayer. Now, in the Greek text, it's also very evident, well, it's also evident in the translation here, that the end of verse 9, he says, without ceasing, I mention you in my prayers. Now, you would think that'd be difficult for him to do, uh, especially since he didn't really know anybody, these people personally, uh, that, you know, to, to constantly be mentioning people, the people in Rome. But maybe there's two reasons for that. But the, one, the most important of which is that Paul did have this sense of responsibility for the whole church. Not just his local flock, so to speak, but for the whole church. One of my favorite passages of all of Paul's letters is Philippians chapter 4, um, verses 6 and 7. In fact, I remember when I was brought up a Lutheran, I remember as one of the youngest things, things I remember my Lutheran pastor would say from the pulpit, um, almost often after a sermon, he would read this passage. And uh, Ken, I'm going to read it, but I'm going to leave out a word when I read this passage and see if you can figure out what word I'm leaving out. When Paul says, <laughs> have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, as I read it, that passage is significant. You don't have any anxiety. And everything, prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God, and the result will be the peace. But I left out yeah, a word. Yeah. What I leave out? Yeah. With thanksgiving. <laughs> so he says, yeah, and this is, this is part of the key, right? Grat the attitude of gratitude makes a significant difference and brings us the peace of God uh, in our hearts to be able to, um, to face the difficulties that may be causing us anxiety. Paul certainly had many anxieties in his life, many reasons to be anxious, and yet the gratitude and the prayer that he developed in his life were a uh, counterforce against that anxiety. Yeah, later in that same chapter, he says, not that I contain a want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I mean, so this attitude of thanksgiving, and Ken, you're the Greek scholar, I left out with thanksgiving. In the Greek, that's meta-eucharistia. That's right, exactly. You know, with Eucharistia. The word, the, and, and the word the word Eucharist, not so much in Paul's text here, but later on, even as early as Ignatius of Antioch, 
becomes a term for the whole liturgy. The whole liturgy is called the Eucharist. And that is, and that expresses, and I wish we as Catholics and other Christians could realize this, the gift, the liturgy is a gift in which we go with a sense of joy to give thanks to God. It's, is it an obligation? Well, yes, it is. I mean, we're, we're obliged to worship God as creatures. But more than that, God invites us into this activity of thanksgiving that's going on in heaven constantly. He invites us into this process by through the liturgy. So it's appropriate that the official liturgy of the church should be called Eucharistia, or thanksgiving. So, I mean, this really emphasizes the importance of prayer. We take that for granted uh, flippantly. But the very first task that Paul admits to these people is that he's praying for them. He's thanking God for them. And so we recognize the, the centrality of prayer makes a difference. You know, I come from a Calvinist background, Ken, that believes that God predestined all things from the beginning of time. And I remember doing my theology paper in seminary about if God has so predestined all things, then why pray? I mean, what difference does it make if God has predestined everything that's happened in his plan, almost like he's locked in, it can never be changed. But we see the mystery of God's mercy and his love, that in his plan, he's allowed our prayers uh, not just to woo him or or lure him away from a decision he's already made, like we, the way we see it expressed in the Old Testament. But in fact, that God, our prayers, has God uses our prayers to, in fact, bring about his will. And Paul recognizes that importance here. The second thing, though, he talks about is visitation, because Paul admits that he's, he's asking that somehow by God's will, he says, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. In verse 11, for I long to see you. In verse 13, I want you to know, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Again, Ken, this reminds me of the early letters of John Carroll, a bishop of America, as he writes to these parishes that were distributed across the post-revolutionary America. They'd never had a bishop before. They'd never met their bishop. And John Carroll wanted to get mm-hmm. to them, promised, but he couldn't. He wanted to. That sounds very much like Paul here. Well, Paul, Paul here very clearly is exercising or expressing his paternal concern for uh, the children of God. Or to use a different metaphor, as a shepherd over the sheep, he's anxious to take care of them. And to, as he says uh, in verse 12, uh, or rather verse 11, to share with them this, um, this spiritual gift so that there can be a mutual encouragement between them. Um, when, you're, when you're in love with someone, you want to be with that person. Paul loved the church. He loved the mystical body of Christ. And I think in a, recently I've been reading a, uh, about, again, uh, about the great the- Jesuit theologian Henri de Lubac, the French theologian of the early mid-20th century, uh, he wrote that book, book called The Splendor of the Church. And it's about seeing the church as the mystical body of Christ. And as we see the church as a mystical body, it's the bride of Christ as well. Paul, in the place of Christ as an apostle, loves the church as his bride. And so his desire to be with the Romans is a natural expression of his love for, for Christ in the church. Ken, you were a Presbyterian pastor at the same time I was. 
Uh, actually, you and I didn't know each other then. Um, no. Well, mm -hmm. you were PCA, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, you see, you were of an apostate Presbyterian denomination. I was of a, <laughs> I was a, a pastor in the PCUSA. So you and I were both yeah. Presbyterian pastors, but we weren't even in Presbyterian denominations that were talking to each other. I mean, to me, that well, just yeah. that just shows you the goofiness of our modern. But well, I'm afraid our hearers won't know all the split peas that you're talking yeah. about. There. But my point is, <laughs> but my point is, I'd never visited your people as a Presbyterian pastor yeah. in Ohio, and you were a Presbyterian pastor, I forget where you were uh, when you were, at, you were at Reformed Seminary, but the point is, I know you were up in Indiana for a while, but the point is, I could have written you a letter out of the blue and said, hey, you know, I've thought about you guys, I've been wanting to meet you, but I haven't, and your people would say, who is this guy? You know, they, would, they wouldn't have, they would have meant nothing to them at all. I'm just some Presbyterian pastor they never met. On the other hand, let's say I was somehow had some fame as a great preacher, like Charles Stanley, the TV preacher, you know, I, you know, or Billy Graham, and I could have written a letter saying, you know, I've been thinking about you guys, I've been praying about you, I really want to visit you, and your people might say, well, that's nice, wow, <laughs> or maybe they thought, who's this arrogant guy? But the point is, that's not what's going on here. That Paul. No. No. You know, there's an expression of a responsibility and expectation that he should visit them. You know, mm -hmm. because he has a certain authority over them, not just because he's Paul, but because of the hierarchy of the church that's already developing, that's already come from our Lord Jesus, that he ex they're expecting him to come because he has that authority as the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, I think that's expressed in verse 11 when he says, I desire to see you, that I might impart some spiritual gift so that you might be strengthened. Or the Latin translation for that is ad confirmandos, in other words, that you might be confirmed. Uh, not necessarily in the technical sense of the, the sacrament of confirmation, but the point is Paul is going to um, impart a spiritual gift to them as an apostle. Now, he's also going to be the recipient, and a number of the church fathers, in commenting on this passage, uh, note that. He says in verse 12, and this is that, that, that we might be mutually uh, encouraged by faith. And priests and bishops are very encouraged by seeing the faith of the lay people. I've seen that many times when my, my brothers in Christ, my fathers in the church, namely priests, are, are able to see that faith in lay people. It greatly encourages them. But the lay people don't have what the bishops or the priests have, and that is an official um, charism. And that's actually the word that Paul uses here in verse 11. A charisma is a charism of priestly ordination to share with the people. So the, the mutual giving in the body of Christ, that as it were, its foundation is in the sacramental clergy, the, the priests, is then shared with the people. They, in turn, by their faith, strengthen the clergy, and there's a beautiful um, symbiosis that takes place in the spiritual life. Here's the, This is that third thing that we see in, in this passage that expresses the authority of, of Paul. When he's separated from the people, he's communicating to God in their behalf. He's praying for them. But he desires to have a direct connection with them through visitation, bishop to his people. But it's not merely to shake hands and to say hello. 
there's going to be a communication there of spiritual fellowship. You know, there's, he's asking for it in prayer. He's going to join them. But then in their mutual fellowship in the Spirit, there's going to be a communication of grace. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a communication of grace, of charisma. Something's that which he's prayed for is going to come through. And part of the way that's going to come about is not merely that they're praying together, but through the proclamation. That which uh, way back in Acts, when the apostles said, we need help taking care of the table so that we can perform our primary function, which is prayer and proclamation of the word. Because we see in this fourth thing, evangelization. The reason Paul wants to go is not merely to, to affirm their shared faith with the people who are already believers, but the number one calling of a bishop is new believers, is new, uh, is reaching out to those that hadn't heard. So we see Paul saying in uh, the second part of verse 12, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So there's this call of the continued harvest. And I love it. It isn't just Paul expecting that maybe he's can, he can convert some of the uh, Roman Gentiles and barbarians but among you, and I love that because that's like today's new evangelization. Uh, you know, the, the new evangelization, which is going to get fallen away Christians, mm-hmm. uh, is never going to happen unless we have conversions of people sitting in the pews every Sunday. Among you, there are still some mm. that need to grow in grace. Mm. The fruit undoubtedly is of two kinds. One, you think he expresses in verse 13 that it's a fruit, you might say numerically, that is new believers, when he says that I might have some fruit among you. And the way it's translated here in the RSV is, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, it could be translated even as also implying it has been among. I've had fruit among the Gentiles, let's say in Asia Minor. Now I want to have that same kind of fruit with you. And he goes on to describe that when he talks about Greeks and barbarians. Which was a very, by the way, very common expression. The Greek viewed everybody else as barbarian, other than them, because they spoke a different language. Wise and unwise, he's a debtor. And in other words, Paul is talking about the adaptation of the gospel to a new culture in which he's going in. But as you say, he also mentions in verse 15, there's the desire for me to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. In other words, the second kind of fruit is spiritual depth. You know, it's interesting, my friends that live in Africa, both Catholic and Protestant have told me the same thing. And that is that it's wonderful how the gospel has spread across Africa. I mean, it's just incredible. The, you know, 260 million Christians in Africa, that's in addition, and that's in a that's happened in a hundred years when it began with less than a million at the beginning of the 20th century. But they always say the same thing. It's a mile wide, but an inch deep. So what Paul is saying here is two types of things. Yes, we need to get the gospel out to the unbelievers who haven't heard it, but it also needs to 
find a more profound depth among those who already do. So that's a type of preaching the gospel as well. Um, and to me, that's that's exciting. It means that not everybody's called to exactly the same kind of ministry. Just Peter and Paul were called to slightly different types of ministry. So priests today each have their own individual ministries and lay people too. They're, they have their mission that is not precisely the same as someone else's. Yeah, let me let me make a, a side comment here because we do hear a lot of talk in the last uh, 20 years, really, about the call to the new evangelization. We first heard John Paul II talking about it and then Pope Benedict, of course, and now Pope Francis and bishops and cardinals in the church and and local dioceses and books and, and you know, synods and everything about the new evangelization. The need to continue the harvest and it needs to happen and and the point of the new evangelization the why it's new is to recognize that there are a lot of people that call themselves catholic christians a lot of people call themselves non-catholic christians uh and they're members and active members of churches all around the world but as you said ken their theology their understanding of jesus christ is a mile wide and an inch deep maybe a quarter of an inch deep and they may know they may know the facts of the gospel but they don't know the person of Jesus Christ and that's the key and my belief is that the new evangelization will never happen it'll never happen until just as Paul had said that those as it said in in the Romans 10 passage how can they believe unless someone preaches? And how can he preach unless they're sent? Unless priests and pastors from the pulpit proclaim the gospel just as Paul intended to do here, to convert the men and women sitting in the pews every Sunday that are there in name only, but have not experienced an authentic conversion to Jesus Christ. And the, and the priest and the pastor from the pulpit cannot do that until they themselves That's true. have authentically yeah. had a conversion to Jesus Christ, which is why we got to make sure our seminaries are not merely turning out men who can do the liturgy perfectly according to the writing in the book, but know deep in their soul the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul was going to Rome was not merely to make sure that they were doing the Mass correctly, but, but that they would know two things, as Paul says here, we'll talk about it, no. The power of God for salvation and the righteousness mm. of God. Those are the things that he mm. says here are what are significant and revealed in the Gospel. Well, this is why I am so encouraged by most of the young men that I meet who are now being ordained priests, um, some of my former students have recently been ordained in the last five years, and they're just an example of many young men across this country. In fact, I don't know if you realize, if people, are, our, our listeners realize it, but actually there's been a swing up now. In other words, ordination ordinations were going down, down, down for maybe 30 years or so, and now there's statistically even a swing up that's more men are entering into the seminary but what's interesting about it is because there's no longer just a cultural attraction to the priesthood 
the men that are going into the priesthood that, that feel the call and are, that a call is affirmed by a bishop, they're doing it because they do have a love for Jesus Christ. And they want to communicate that to others. So we're living, I think John Paul was right, we're living, of course, in a very secular time. But nevertheless, I think there's a springtime going on. And we're just beginning to see the shoots come to the ground as the spring is coming out and the church is beginning to flourish. Yeah, now, I was going to say one of the... I'm sorry, Ken. No, I was just going to say, and that's very similar to what Paul was expressing. The church is, you know, the church is in a pagan society, but the sprouts are beginning to come up, and we're beginning to see a springtime of the gospel. Yeah, and these young, on fire seminarians now, so that the increase is, in, is new priests. But the problem is, there's been a shortage, and so they come out of the seminaries busier than. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and so it's even beaten. more so, yeah, the words of Acts chapter 6 need to be heeded, is that we, the laity, encouraged by John Paul II, uh, called to take our responsibilities because we have been sent by our baptism. We need to take so many responsibilities yeah. in local church so that the priest can do just what is said here, can pray yeah. and preach. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have a priest like St. John Vianney who sits in a confessional all day <laughs> and people come and stream into the church? And, 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 you know, there are priests that do that. There's one down in Chicago. I think it's a Franciscan church down there where they, you know, there's some priest in the confessional all day long. Well, I was we just going to say, I was going to say that yeah. some of our Protestant lizards may not get that what we're talking about there uh, but but the point was that uh, he is able to sit in the confession all day not reading books but because the people were so cut to the quick in their heart for the power of the gospel and the righteousness of god yeah. that they were streaming exactly. to the confessional that was the point and so that's what needs to be happened yeah. through the preaching of the gospel and in this passage it came in both the things where it talks about in 1617, where the gospel is the power of God for salvation and the righteousness of God, both in the gospel, all come down to the faith, the faith that the yeah. people have received. And so there's what needs to happen, the faith of the priest, the faith of the bishop, the faith of the priest, proclaimed from the gospel so that the faith of the people in the pews can be enlivened so that the yeah, power they can grow through faith for faith yeah exactly so the power yeah, and righteousness of god can change faith. Them. yeah so they Absolutely. can grow Absolutely. yeah it's well, transformative <laughs> all right ken thanks a lot we've uh, we've come to the end of our program uh and i i do pray that this study has been an encouragement to you to recognize that through grace our faith is open so that the power and righteousness of god can change us can draw us to deeper faith in Jesus Christ. Well, God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week on Deep in Scripture. See you next week.